0: This is Menachem Creditor, not quite sure what's going on, but there are nice people on my screen, and so I'm going to talk to them for a little while.
1: Hi, I'm Gabe Snyder, a third-year cantorial student at the Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion.
2: And hi, I'm third-year rabbinical student Amanda Weiss, also at HUC, J-A-R-N-Y.
1: We have a really fantastic episode for you today. We have Rabbi Menachem Creditor with us today, who's just fantastic. What else can I say?
2: Yeah, this content goes in a lot of different directions, including ones that follow some of Rabbi Creditor's most passionate activism, gun violence prevention and suicide awareness. Understanding that this might be a difficult time for some, we encourage you to reach out and speak to someone. If need be, you can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, available 24 hours a day, at one 800 273-8255 thank you for spending this holiday week with us we think you're going to love what you'll hear next Hello, we're thrilled to be here with Rabbi Menachem Creditor for our fifth episode. Rabbi Menachem Kreder serves as the Pearl and Ira Meyer Scholar-in-Residence at UJA Federation New York and was the founder of Rabbis Against Gun Violence, a frequent speaker in communities and campuses around the United States and Israel with over one million views of his online videos and essays. He was named by Newsweek as one of the 50 most influential rabbis in America. His 23 books and six albums of original music include the global anthem Olam Chesed Yibaneh and the anthologies When We Turn Within and None Shall Make Them Afraid. He has been involved in the leadership of American Jewish World Service, APAC, the Rabbinical Assembly, and the One America Movement, an organization dedicated to bringing together Americans of different faiths and opinions. He and his wife, Neshama Karlbach, live in New York, where they are raising their five children. We're also thrilled to be able to say hello to Rabbinical student Kaylee Romick, and a special hi to my co-host, Gabe. Hello. Our favorite producer, Edan Waldman. Hello. Welcome, Rabbi Menachem Creditor. Welcome, Kaylee.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for having us. <laughs> I am really, really excited to talk with Gabe. Gabe, I know that normally we joke or normally we've talked about the fact that you have a very important challenge to start every podcast off. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, This podcast is all about Torah and all about the weekly Torah portion, so we kind of have to explain what happens in the weekly Torah portion. Each week, I attempt to succinctly give a rundown of what goes on uh, in that week's Torah portion. We time it. I am always challenged to see if I can get it under 30 seconds. I can't. It's not possible. It's never going to happen. But the challenge continues. This week's Torah portion, Parashat Vayetze, is a longer one uh, with more things that happen that are all important, and I don't want to cut any of them. So this is going to be a longer rundown. Everybody ready? Go. As you may remember from last week, despite having very unwisely agreed to trade his birthright for some stew, Esau is pretty unhappy with Jacob for stealing his birthright from their father. So Jacob runs away toward the land of Haran. On his way, he stops somewhere between 'er Beersheba and Haran, takes some stones to put under his head, and spends the night. He dreams and has a vision of a ladder stretching between heaven and earth, with messengers of God, or angels, ascending and descending. God's there too, and promises Jacob that he and his seed will inherit the land upon which he is sleeping. Jacob's descendants will be like the dust of the earth and burst forth in all directions and all the families of the earth will be blessed through Jacob. Finally, God promises God's protection over Jacob. Jacob wakes up and exclaims, surely the Eternal is in this place and I, I did not know. Awestruck and probably pretty shaken from his vision of God and heavenly beings, he names this place Beit Elohim, or Beit El, the House of God, and consecrates a monument there. So Jacob continues his journey and finds a well where he meets some guys, but more importantly his cousin whose spoiler, will later be his second wife, Rachel. Rachel's dad Laban also comes out to see his nephew and Jacob offers him a deal. I will work for you for seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban agrees and Jacob works for him for seven years but then Laban tricks him and Jacob marries the older daughter Leah instead. So then Jacob has to work for another seven years in order to actually marry Rachel which was the original goal this whole time. And that is why, in the words of Perchik from Kiev, you can never trust an employer. That was an incredibly niche joke for an already niche podcast. So anyway, Leia has some kids. Rachel is not so lucky and gets jealous of her sister, so Jacob has two more kids with Rachel's servant Bilhah. Leah, no longer able to conceive after having four sons, doesn't want to be outdone, and so her servant Zilpah has two of Jacob's sons. But then, surprise, Leah is actually able to have kids again and has two more sons and the one and only daughter. Only then does God remember that Rachel hasn't actually had any kids yet, so Rachel has her first son. Just to recap, Leah has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, then Bilhah, Rachel's servant, has Dan and Naphtali, then Zilpah, Leah's servant, has Gad and Asher, then back to Leah with Issachar, Zebulun, and Dina, and finally, just kidding, there's one more after this, Rachel has Joseph. So now that he's a bit of a family man, Jacob is ready to leave Laban and go back to his home. Jacob asks for some of Laban's flock so he can provide for the small country that is his family, and they agree to split up the flock with Laban getting the white sheep and goats and Jacob taking the spotted speckled and dark animals. Jacob performs some creative animal husbandry and his flock increases and expands. While Laban is out shearing the sheep one day, Jacob packs up his camels and they set out, but without telling anyone, Rachel steals her father's idols. Laban is upset by this and catches up to Jacob's caravan and confronts him. Jacob, not knowing what Rachel has done, tells Laban that whoever took the idols will die. They search for the idols, but Rachel puts them under a saddle and sits on it. When Laban comes in, she tells him that she's menstruating, so he neglects to check under the saddle. They don't find the idols, so they have an argument, but make a truce, setting up another monument. They eat, they spend the night night and the men go on their separate ways and that's parashat vayitzeh
2: how long was that it?
1: yeah 3 minutes and 20 seconds okay
0: my god gabe my god how did you do that i didn't breathe very much <laughs> that was that was the first part it's like the micro machine man from my
1: childhood but really sacred thank you i i do what i can for the jewish people <laughs>
2: Rabbi Kajr, we're so thrilled to be with you today and so excited that you could join us. The first thing that we want to ask is, what is something that drives your work? What's a belief or an insight that is pushing your passions forward these days?
0: Thanks for asking, and I really appreciate the chance to be here. Uh, I find myself more motivated than ever during this bizarre time of human history to, um, to pour everything that's in me out. And one of the things I've learned along the way is that that isn't actually me pouring me out. It's me trying to get out of the way of whatever is supposed to come through us. What, what motivates me so much is the needless wasting of resource and the claiming of more God than your neighbor that happens so often in the world. That's also a religious problem. That's also a social problem, because if I replace God with truth or truth with nation or nation with my tribe versus yours, it's all the same problem where I claim more right to my life than I believe you have. And uh, what motivates me most is to see Torah as a tool for connecting people, to, to make sure that God isn't weaponized and to represent the Jewish people both with pride and humility because we're awesome, but we're awesome just like other peoples are awesome. And we have a relationship with God And God is bigger than what we think. Could you explain a little bit more
1: what exactly you mean when you say, I get more God than you get?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it it requires a lot of unpacking because first of all, the word God gets in the way so often. I invoke God and the fundamentalists think that I'm one of them and the atheists think that we have nothing in common. But what I mean by God is more common to probably an agnostic or an atheist's notion that there's something larger than self that matters in the world. And what I don't mean is what a fundamentalist might mean, which is that I know exactly what the divine wants me to do. And that command is the loudest thing in my soul. Um, When I claim that I have more God, what I also mean is what Rabbi Erwin Kula, my teacher, says, when I believe I have more God than you, I'll go get a gun. And that has animated so much of my work, both literally in the gun violence prevention field and also in the interfaith field, and also trying to educate the Jewish community what it is to serve God humbly. We often think that what happened at Sinai um, is absolutely clearly communicated in discrete terms in the Torah. And even if that's true, even if that's true for some, some people's religious belief, We still don't know what it means. I'm much closer to the Hasidic teaching of Menachem Mendel of Rimenov, who said that what was revealed at Sinai was God opening God's mouth, whatever that means. The first letter of the first word of the first command, which is the letter Aleph, which actually doesn't have a sound. It just has the possibility of encounter. So when I claim I've got more God, what that really means is I think that you don't. And that's really not faith. That's not God. That's ego. That is selfishness. And it ends with cruelty. And so that's my biggest worry in the world, actually.
2: So I know that you also said that Torah is it, it can be used as a tool for connecting people. And, and obviously we agree with that. Um, that's, that's the premise of our podcast. On the same note, often you would think that people might be hearing this podcast and turn it off immediately upon hearing the word God, right? Like that can often be a, a piece of disconnect for a lot of Jews out there. I know Gabe and I have worked with a lot of teens over the last years. Um, And, you know, this is a, a place where teens feel deeply uncomfortable because many are questioning or simply just don't believe in God. And so for our listeners who might be uncomfortable with the God subject, you know, what might you have to say to them?
0: I say you're right. I say that your discomfort with God is because Most people think of God in too concrete a term for it to actually be God. The word God can be an abuse of the divine. And what I see in the other human beings before me, um, there's no test for. In my way of seeing the world, every human being is created in the image of God. But what that really means is you are as worthy of love and dignity as anybody and I am only as worthy of the dignity that I afford you. For anyone turned off by, by the use of the word God or by faith itself, I don't think they're wrong. Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the Rebbis of the 20th century, said very clearly that religion went wrong, not because it was defeated by science or reason, but because it became ossified, dull and boring. And when faith was replaced by creed, we lost it all. We became more obsessed with how big my sanctuary is, as opposed to, is there a window there to remind me there's a world that I'm praying for? So what I mean by God, you know, I have a working definition that I haven't used in a long time, but I really deep down believe that God is the collective potential of the human imagination. And that means bigger than what I believe and bigger than what all of my family believes, and bigger than all the Jewish people in the world. And in fact, because of what I really mean, it's bigger than what every human being alive today believes. It's what our ancestors yearned for, and what our descendants will continue to yearn for. And only when we collect all of that, and we use it for everyone's sake, for the descendants we can't even imagine, for their sake and for the earth itself, only then can it approach what we actually point to when we use the word God.
1: I think that's a really great connection and a really great avenue into um, this week's Torah portion where we hear so much about the descendants, the blessing of God to Jacob during his vision of the ladder is uh, that his descendants will burst forth, that they'll spread out, that they will be a great nation, that all descendants of the earth will be blessed through Jacob. Jacob has not one but two wives and more women with whom he has children, and we hear about many of his many of his descendants. Uh, we even hear Laban talk about his descendants when they're fighting in that final scene. Um, there's conversation of, of course, I came to see you. You didn't even let me say goodbye to my daughters and to my grandchildren. Um, so I'm I'm wondering how you might see yourself, how you might see your work in this week's Torah portion.
0: I'm glad we have this Torah portion, not because it's smooth or happy. In fact, it it demonstrates the, the deep tension and fissures in our ancestral family. And in fact, that's one of the reasons Torah is so important and useful. We think of it sometimes as Torah is a subject to study, and here's my life. But in fact, when we're honest and raw, when we allow ourselves to to really feel the emotionality and the pain and also the rapture of the text, it's just basically an older version of the family story, right? And so you look at what Jacob says when he's encountering Lavan and what Lavan says back to Jacob, but actually what's their story? Jacob ran for his life because he lied to his father and stole from his brother because his mother made him. And his father himself was so traumatized by his own childhood that he yearned for a a different kind of masculinity, maybe. So Jacob's running away from all of that with no closure for himself. Why would we be surprised that he doesn't know how to say goodbye? Why would we be surprised that his family of origin doesn't hold honesty as the way of creating family? And in fact, the way that the children continue that legacy of jealousy and ego, it's all based on a biblical premise which was not unique to the Torah, but certainly pervades Genesis and the rest of the Torah, that there's only enough love for a few in a generation and there's only enough blessing for one child of many. I feel that my work connects to that because it's wrong. I I have been steeped in Torah after, after my entire life I was blessed by a traditional and thoughtful uh, Jewish home as a child. And I, I'm doing my best to continue that and develop it further. There is something about the Torah's message that calls us over and over. It's like the indigo girls say, right? How long till my soul gets it right? We didn't get it right. And every generation tries again. Clearly, when we look at the entire book of Breshid, of Genesis, until the very end, we, we have so much work to do. That the dysfunction that happens, and in fact, when Jacob has that dream of the ladder, if you remember, his conversation with God is actually so edgy. It is so nervy. Jacob says to God, if you will take care of me and be with me when I go and when I come back, then you will be my God. That is the first moment, I think, uh, since Abraham says, Chalil shame on you, God, if you act in in an unjust way. It's the first moment in the Torah where a human being says to God, you owe humanity, you put us here. We wanna love you, right? So love us. Show us what safety feels like on this earth. Then you're ours. It's this very powerful way. I think my work as a rabbi is geared toward this. I think Judaism in its deepest way is geared toward this, is reminding God through all of God's children, including the one doing the speaking, that we are obligated to each other. And that only when we do that, are we really worthy of this life.
2: I think that's beautiful. I also wanted to note that you said part of the work that you do and part of what we're trying to find out is, is to show what safety can be like on earth. And for this podcast, we often try to translate Torah into real life tactics. And you mentioned earlier that something you're very passionate about is gun violence prevention. And so I'm curious if you would be willing to talk a little bit more about that um, and, and maybe what Jewish values align with that work and the drive that you're doing. Um, and if it might even connect to the Torah portion that we're talking about now.
0: I mean, ultimately, it all connects. The question is can I find the words? Can we? can we say what it is that pushes us forward in life? Elaine Scarry has a phenomenal book called The Body in Pain, where she says, you know, we have all these words for love, but try describing a headache. And I think ultimately the reason why this Torah portion speaks so um, painfully to me, and maybe to others, um, is because I weep for everybody involved. Rachel feels unloved. Leah feels unloved. Leah's eyes are described as soft. And Rashi says it's because she cries so much. Of course she cries. I mean, this, this terrible situation that everyone finds themselves in, where they have to compete for love, and the children are pitted against each other. Well, it, It's not the same, but it isn't so different from the way we as parts of society look at each other. And only when we acknowledge privilege do we understand what the other experience might be. Does Joseph has, have any awareness as he grows from this story that he's loved so much because his father is grieving for his mother? Does he have any idea and is that fair to him at all? So he's, as, as Heschel said elsewhere, right? In a free society, some are guilty, all are responsible. Eventually, we all have to take responsibility for our story. And so how this Parsha connects to the work specifically of gun violence prevention? A very significant number of the 40,000 lives lost to gun violence in America every year are from suicide. How dare we ignore mental health in our world? And that has to impel us to see the problem of gun violence, not only, and I say only with very no words are going to be appropriate here, and I'm going to trip over my attempt to speak justly. But I got involved with gun violence because of Sandy Hook, a massacre that took place in a school, and it never occurred to me until I went to the White House with a delegation that was interfaith by design and majority African American by default, by reality. I had no idea that I was paying attention to 26 white murders. I didn't pay attention to the actual epidemic of gun violence on the street, the difference between urban gun violence, and automatic rifles, which is a 2% of the 40,000 deaths. And each of those deaths is an entire universe, I don't grieve less for them, but I wasn't really paying attention. And I was writing a prayer. That's why I got invited to the White House because I, I wrote a prayer after Sandy Hook. And I went with a delegation of 90. And a good friend of mine, Pastor Michael McBride, asked me to join him. And I noticed I was the only rabbi. I was the only Jew. I said, Michael, do you want some Jews? He said, you can get Jews? I said, sure. So I asked a few really wonderful colleagues. Nine of the 90 clergy that went to the White House were Jewish. And those nine rabbis were the only white people in the room. So when the facilitator looked at the tables where we mixed it up and the facilitator said, tell me about the gun violence death that affected you most. Almost all the rabbis went, I, I don't have one. And the, the African-American pastors at the table said, you want me to choose one? And that was the beginning of my awareness that I knew nothing, nothing. And it was a, a humbling, terrible honor. To be present in that way. And it was the beginning of my education. And in fact, if we look at the way Jacob runs for his life, trying to save his family from Lavan, we can't figure out what what the solutions will be to our problems if we don't acknowledge, analyze, and really think openly about what the situation really is. There's so much jealousy between the sisters, there's so much panic in Jacob, there's so much deceit in Lavan. And what about Bilhan Zilpa? They aren't called matriarchs. What are they? I know in the ancient world, status is different than we think about today, but how do we have this conversation today? And in fact, if we really look at what's thorny in this parsha, maybe we'll have a model of how to think about America. Maybe we'll have a model to think about our cousins, our sisters, our brothers. Maybe we'll hear the call of Genesis and know that the blood is screaming from the streets. But the only way I can do something about it is if I actually pause from thinking I know what the problem is that I understand. I don't. My job is to listen well, and try to use whatever strength God's given me to stand with as an ally to stand in solidarity, and to, to feel really deeply. This Parsha doesn't give us the answer, but it definitely presents the problem.
2: You know, you speak very honestly about checking our privilege in, in a very different way than I think most of us hear that sentence in our minds. Um, and you also spoke to an incredible amount of, of gun violence through suicide and, and our need for greater mental health awareness. I'm really aware that we are going into this week of Thanksgiving, right, which is a very difficult week for many people when they are allowed to be with their families, And it's a very difficult week this week when many of us may not be allowed to be with our families due to what's going on with COVID. And, you know, I see this portion of Jacob literally heading into family drama. He's running away from one family drama, head first into another one. And so I think there is a lot to say about mental health in the Torah. I think there is a lot to say about family power dynamics in the Torah and I think that all of that really does influence even the way that we might act around our own families today. And I'm curious if you might have anything else that you might wanna add to that, um, thoughts that you might think about how people are gonna make it through this holiday season, which is a bit unique from what we're expecting um, in, in either you know, aspects of, of the spectrum of, of being with family and having that be difficult or being separated from family and having that be difficult.
0: I think the question is really, really an important one. It always is, and it definitely is this year. Um, You know, I'm I'm going through whatever it is I'm going to be thinking about right now out loud, right? My family is all over the world. My daughter's in Jerusalem. My parents are in Richmond, Virginia. My sister's in Tel Aviv, and my sister's in San Diego with the Navy. My wife's mother is in Toronto. And I am so... Blessed with abundance, and all of that is true still. This last Pesach felt very much the same way, but the difference between where we were and where we might be when it comes to mental health, and when it comes to family stress, and when it comes to the narrative we all carry with us—you know—actually, Thanksgiving might be a good a good text for this too. Thanksgiving, I remember as a child being told the the lie. the fake story of Thanksgiving, where everyone was hunky-dory and sat down at picnic benches and everyone had enough food. But really, when we look at it, Thanksgiving was part of uh, the beginning of the massacre of the Native American population. No one told me at Thanksgiving dinner about smallpox blankets. Don't Google it. It's really important for us to know that the story is always more complicated, then it's presented. When we are all, please God, soon able to sit at a table together with our families and finally cry those huge tears that are waiting. No matter how much we've cried already, there is a lot more waiting. And maybe I'm speaking more about myself than someone else, but I know it's there. When we are blessed to sit together with family, will we have learned from our yearning for each other to be more kind And in the aftermath of a ragged election, where some of our families are divided because of their votes, will we see the humanity across the table instead of asking someone if their humanity is bound up with their ballot? Now, it's clear that our values are why we make the decisions we do, but my values shouldn't erase your humanity from my eyes. And if that's true, that I'm called despite it all, to see the humanity in you, and I think if that's true that you're obligated too to see the humanity in me, then when we Zoom at Thanksgiving, maybe we can just find some quiet. And we don't have to make the story a simple one that makes sense for me because the story doesn't make any sense. Thanksgiving doesn't make any sense, gratitude does. Our family doesn't make any sense, but I love you. This dinner doesn't make any sense. Why cranberry sauce? Like what? But the same is true about Shabbat. Why wax candles or why oil or why ch? The answer is this is gorgeous. This brings us together and it doesn't have to make sense. It's ritual and the gift of ritual. This is what I would say for this Thanksgiving. And I'm getting emotional and full of tears as I think about it the gift of ritual is to hold us safe in a very shaky world. And that has to be our goal. This year especially, the world is so shaky. So Thanksgiving is not an inherently Jewish moment, but it is a defining moment in an American calendar. The question is, what does it define? If the root of it is gratitude, then to find a way without everything I want, to still know that I have more than enough. And I, I have found for myself that the way to get there is to pause and find some quiet. I found it ironic during, um, I think it was during the uh, the counting of the election, right, when the, the votes were being counted, that at least on CNN, it was being sponsored by Calm, right, the app that gets you to do nothing. And so in the 30-second breaks between, you know, breaking news every other minute, the 30 seconds literally was the text, do nothing for 30 seconds. So maybe when we come together in order to increase mental health, increase family health, ground myself again in this world, we can find the moment for quiet. And if we do, then we know that we're living a life of abundance because we got to choose how to spend our time.
1: I similarly to Amanda was struck by your description of um, the gun violence epidemic. I'm also similarly struck by your description of how people are living in the world today, how how people are sitting um, emotionally in this time, in this place. i I want to bring it back a little bit to the Torah portion, but, on some level, at, at the risk of alienating the audience, um, I want to um, bring in theology a little bit, um, and I want to talk about how Jacob's experience of this dream, when he wakes up from this dream, the text says, ra, yomar, no ra haze, and that word ra, um, across pretty much any translation that anybody could look at, um, will will be translated as, usually as awestruck, maybe as shaken, but as those of us who have studied Hebrew know, that's that's not incorrect, but it's not the full picture. And it's a more complicated emotion than that, that there's a sense of fear that comes in, uh, both for yira and nora, how awe-inspiring, how terrifying is this place. And I'm thinking about the place we're in now. I'm thinking about the fear. I'm thinking about the awe that we're experiencing. I'm wondering if you could talk to us about w- when Jacob wakes up from his dream and he says, no haze, he then builds a monument of some kind and he sanctifies it. I'm wondering if you have uh, a call to action of what we do with our fear with our awe with our grief, our sadness and our gratitude
0: that you're calling for I appreciate the question and I, and I'm gonna answer but I want to do so humbly you know I, I, I think there are a lot of people who shout what they think someone should do in, including some rabbis and so what I'd like to do is not do that I think the call to action, in this moment, and I think each moment requires an adaptive kind of leadership on our parts, is, is um, to think about what the word essential means. We've used the word essential to describe certain workers in the world today. People who stock the shelves uh, at our grocery store, nurses and doctors and therapists and sanitation workers whose work is really the only reason the world is continuing to turn right now. But the word essential actually is a euphemism for what we really mean. We use the word essential to describe people who don't have the choice to work from home. Because I, I pivoted in my teaching, in my rabbiing, and a lot of us did, and we're doing it from, from home, which means we had a choice. What's the call to action? to own your privilege and to see, to see more human worth than you did before. That can lead towards anything. But, you know, there are people, I remember, I was a senior rabbinical student at JTS on 9-11. And I remember we all got online to donate blood. Right? And that is, of course, what we should do. But it was so powerful to notice all the underlying things that we never paid attention to until we started to that day. It's not at all the same. But when people donate food to a food pantry, is that the same as acknowledging food insecurity and trying to change the underlying reasons for the need? Why are some workers essential? Shouldn't we all be essential and equally vulnerable? The inequalities that have been exacerbated by this pandemic were already there. The social services that UJA Federation, where I work, is built to support are being taxed beyond capacity, not because it's a new direction, but because the amount is just so much more. But that begs a question. So when Jacob wakes up and says, you know, Oh my God, you're here. You know, I mean, on a podcast, you can't see someone crying, but I am now. know, just notice God. Notice that there's a world you get to inhabit. Notice that your heart is beaten. And make sure someone else's heart can beat too. In whatever way you, you have been built, in, in whatever way you have nurtured your own soul, both in terms of origin and then in terms of self-determination, You know, you owe this world your gifts. That means you have to take care of yourself, make sure you're breathing, make sure you take care of your body, and boy, am I speaking to me right now. But do something with your body. Faith is what we do with our bodies. So the call to action is do something. Don't tell me what you believe. Show the world that you care. Do something.
1: Thank you. About a year ago, I. The CCAR Press, that's the Central Conference of American Rabbis Press, uh, published the Musar Torah Commentary, edited by Rabbi Barry Block, um, and in it, uh, different authors uh, relate um, each Torah portion to a midah that is an attribute, um, and I, I, I'm struck by the entry. For Vayetse, written by Rabbi Daniel Alexander, um, where he relates uh, Vayetse to Savlanut to patience, um, and I, when you said take a deep breath, I, something clicked in my head, and I pulled it off the shelf, and I, um, I wanted to see if I could pull out a single line or a piece of text from it. And there's there's not one line that I really want to consider. But I I, I do want to read the last line of the chapter where he writes, And while awakening us to complete the virtue of patience, it also stirs us to consider the limits within which we best exhibit this virtue. And it, it just, it strikes me as so similar to what you're saying that um, you know, we have to be patient. But at the same time, there is a call to action. And within that deep breath and within that uh, sitting or laying down in awe or in fear or in gratitude, there's still a drive to do something more. Um, and so I, I just wanted to appreciate everything you just said. I think Edon is probably going to cut that entire thing. But um, I, I just wanted to put that out there. It's beautiful. I just bought that commentary. I love it. It's a good one. I was lucky enough to work at the CCAR while they were editing, and I was able to work on the book a little bit, which was quite fun for me um, to get to read a lot of smart people saying a lot of smart things. <laughs>
2: It is my pleasure and honor to introduce uh, Kaylee Romick as our special guest to have some question and answer time with Rabbi Menachem Creditor today. Originally from Texas, Kaylee Romick is a fourth year rabbinical student at the Jewish Theological Seminary and the first JTS student on this podcast. Yay, welcome. She currently serves as Woodbury Jewish Center's rabbinic intern and director of youth and family engagement. We think they are extremely lucky to have her. Check out her Jewish spirituality on Instagram, Modern Jewish Soul. Kaylee, with that, it's all you. Hi, thanks so
3: much, guys. I really enjoyed listening to the conversation you had, and it's nice to be a fly on the wall. And one topic that came up that I'm particularly interested in is ritual. A lot of Americans have rituals going to Starbucks, following the Mets uh, in my neck of the woods, Going to Soul Cycle or yoga, and my question for you is: Why should Jews choose Jewish ritual over other rituals that are out there?
0: First of all, hi, Kaylee. Nice to meet you.
3: Hi, nice to meet you too.
0: Um, I I don't know that I have a great answer for that because it it assumes that I should try to convince Jews to observe Jewish rituals. I, I think that you started in the right place, which is to say that we all have rituals. I, I lived for eleven years in Berkeley, California, where people said, no, no rituals, no conformity. And yet the biggest thing that anyone did was Burning Man, which was the most ritualized experience imaginable. And so your question, why should Jews choose Jewish ritual? I'll use a teacher of mine, Rabbi uh, Jay Michelson, who was my Frisbee coach at Camp Ramon, the Berkshires many, many years ago. And he said in his book called, Everything is God, the Radical Path of Non-Dual Judaism. That along his experimental phases, he abandoned all the things that were special to him, his faith, his gender as much as he could, his identity, and he came to a conclusion that Judaism is neither superior nor necessary. But it is superior and necessary for him because it is the vocabulary of his soul. So instead of me trying to convince a Jew to do Jewish ritual, what I would say is, this is a beautiful home we have. This is a gorgeous way we set the table. These songs are so beautiful. And that's true for me. And I'd love to share them. If you find meaning in the world, you are blessed. This is how I do it. And I love it so much. I can't stop talking about it. So if that works for you, let's do it together. If you want to share something meaningful with me, I'd love to hear what's meaningful for you. Ritual has got to be bigger than my pattern of behaviors if it's really going to point me beyond. So I think I just said I wouldn't. I think that's a short version of what I just said. I wouldn't tell a Jew that they have to do it Jewishly. I think my job is to love it so bigly that it looks pretty and it, it carries the meaning beyond what I'm feeling inside.
3: Thank you so much. So I see in your Zoom box that you have a lot of guitars behind you. And we know your, your spouse is a very beloved musician. And I'm wondering what music, music's places in your spiritual practice?
0: Yeah, music, um, it has been part of my DNA since before I was born. My mother was an all-state Alto in New York and my dad was a gorgeous davener. Um, and we used to sing every shamus and music has been a way that even when I'm not trying, it ends up bubbling forth. What's powerful about the way you asked the question too is you asked where what the place of music is in my spiritual practice which as a child, I don't know I would have understood as a question. I could have answered where it was in my halachic life or where it was in my traditional practice. But in my spiritual life, music is the biggest thing we've got. When my daughter, my eldest child, and I wrote a song recently, that was the biggest moment of intergenerational blessing because she truly was co-authoring a statement of spirit that had enough room for me. And I was trying my best as parents I think should try to do to make sure she was really exercising her voice. And when her voice and my voice combined, that was a moment of pure holiness. In fact, um, when I first met my wife, um, this is when we first met and were friends for 10 years before we, we began dating. We met when she came to perform a concert at my shul in Berkeley and we sang a song and i remember being struck by what that felt like to be surrounded by this holy music by this rapturous performer and and to feel our voices daven you know music music changed what would have been words into into something something beyond something undefinable
3: thank you i want to take it back to a subject we were talking about earlier where The country is so divided and people are having a harder and harder time looking each other in the face and seeing a human. What advice do you have for people going home this Thanksgiving where they know they're going to be sitting across the table from someone who vehemently disagrees with them, whose values are different? And maybe it's not even just sitting across the table. Maybe it's walking into a supermarket or working on a a project together at work. How are we able to have that I-thou relationship that Martin Buber speaks of, that um, Musar really holds up as an ideal when there is such a lack of common ground?
0: Again, the question is spot on for this moment but I would take a step back, even before the step you asked me to take back and begin by saying, we actually don't have as hard a time as the media would have us feel. And we don't have as hard a time as social media would have us feel. The echo chamber that the era of Zoom has really amplified in our lives um, is only part of the truth. I believe deep down that everyone just wants to know that they're going to be okay and the people that they love are going to be okay. It's really what we all want and need. I'm an anti-gun violence activist. People who, some people, who are, I don't mean gun enthusiasts, but believe in the Second Amendment, really want to just know that they're going to be safe. It doesn't have to be laced with all of the historic racism that goes into gun ownership and the lobbyists who transform power into It doesn't have to go in that direction. In fact, I think America is more united today than we give it credit for. We have moved into zip codes where our ideas resonate, but that doesn't mean we actually don't have a lot in common. I I don't know what it is to live in West Virginia right now, so I actually should pause before I cast judgment. If I have a relative coming to Thanksgiving from West Virginia, I can't presume to speak to their experience because I don't have it. And I shouldn't presume that they should convince me or that I should convince them. In fact, at, at best, toward that Buberian ideal that you named, right? I'll just quote Thich Han instead of Martin Buber. Thich Nhat Hanh says a real conversation is when two people speak and they're both willing to change their mind. Now, Jews don't do that often. <laughs> we, we, we take our turn. <laughs> and we, oh, are you done? Now I'm going to make my point. I, I think that um, we don't have to be as divided as we've been told. We can decide. And why not make that explicit? Why not set a kavanah at Thanksgiving dinner, be it on Zoom or be it in person, and say the things that divide us don't belong here avoidance is not a lack of love. Avoidance might be a method of being close to each other. I want to avoid that topic, not not because there's any lack of love I have for you. I don't want to talk about that with you. I want to talk about you. How are you? What keeps you up at night? How can I comfort you? And I have to tell you, you know, if I'm the one doing the kavanah, I have to tell you, I'm not giving this speech because I feel okay. I'm setting this kavanah because I'm feeling kind of wobbly in the world. And I'm so glad we get to be together. If we amplified what is right in society, what is right in family, and we intentionally turn down the volume, I actually think we'd find more kindness. We'd find more unification. Uh, Of course, in the same moment, I can point to things that disturb me to no end, true in America, true within every family, But looking at headlines should not be what comes to mind when I look at my family. It's it's hard to do this, but if building family and building society, building a beloved community is the goal, then I have to be willing to love someone with whom I disagree. And, And really, I'm speaking to myself. I have to check my opinions at the door if I want to have a place with certain members of my family, which doesn't mean I change my mind or compromise It means I love them more. I love them more than than I sometimes remember to.
3: Earlier, you asked us to stop and to notice the blessing of the moment. But these days, sometimes moments don't seem so blessed or, you know, at least not obviously blessed there. Maybe your heart races like mine does. Maybe there's discomfort or pain that you feel. How do you invite God into that moment or, or divinity into a moment that's really difficult?
0: Again, a rabbi who answers that question quickly and with certainty, I worry about. We're human beings first. And in this moment, um, you know, I struggle at least for an hour a day, every day. And that's a really hard period of time, and it feels like it goes on for an eternity. And for any of the mindful things that I could say right now, and I have a few things that come to mind, um, I'm, I'm at a loss some days, sometimes for more than an hour, sometimes for more than a day. And in those moments, that's the broken heart that I just have and i don't have the rabbinic aphorism in mind in that moment right that god's god only lives in a broken heart or the teaching you know open your heart just like a keyhole and i'll find my way in says god um i think i think we have to be honest about how hard this is and there's a practice a hasidic practice that Rav Nachman of and other other practitioners um, they created it, but they named it and they, they, um, taught it being alone and being alone can take many forms. One of the forms that works for me is going into a place where the, where no one else is could be, a, you know, this is sad, the abandoned basketball court at my nearby school. And starting by saying, God, I have nothing to say to you. And don't stop talking. The rule is don't stop talking because I have a lot of rage at God right now. I have a lot of anger at God right now. I'm not open every moment of every day right now to God's reassurance because I'm really mad at what God's world includes and I hold God accountable for it too, which is one of the reasons I think reminding myself and all of us that we are the walking images of God is a way of holding God accountable. Because I can't point to some disembodied being and say, it's your fault, unless I put my own hand on my own heart and say, oh, it really is. I can't change it all, but I've got to do something. That's God stirring within me and I'm angry. So how can I offer comfort right now? I think by validating the pain. There's gotta be room in a relationship with God for the pain and the anger and the sense of abandonment. And that's the way, you know, I just learned from uh, Dr. Edith Eger, who is a survivor of the Shoah. She just gave a talk at at UJA and she had this phrase, which I don't know if it's Yiddish, but it feels like it should be, right? She said, we don't cover garlic with chocolate, right? If that's not a Yiddish phrase, please somebody translate it into Yiddish. She said, there's no forgiveness without rage. We don't cover garlic with chocolate. I want the chocolate. <laughs> I want the rice crispy chocolate thing. That's yummy. But I'm not. we're not going to get there. We're not going to have the sweetness if we don't acknowledge how hard this is. And I actually think that God's in both. God is, I hope God is raging too. And I hope we get to sing with God really soon.
3: I resonate with that a lot. And thank you so much for this wonderful conversation.
0: Thank you, Kaylee. It's really good to
2: talk to you. You know, Gabe, there's a holiday coming up.
1: Is there? I haven't been paying attention.
2: Believe it or not, Thanksgiving is in just a few short days.
1: Very exciting.
2: Any chance that for this week's Midrashic Mixology segment that you and Rabbi Menachem Creditor came up with a really cool drink?
1: You know, there just might be a chance of that. This week's cocktail is Fam. A loving mixture of the tryptophan that we'll be enjoying this week during Thanksgiving and the family that we might see or from whom we may social distance, as did Jacob during Parashat Vayetze. We wanted to create a cozy fall drink where one could snuggle up, make a pillow out of some rocks, and fall asleep in order to dream of angels and ladders. So we're going to create a mulled cider by combining half a gallon of apple cider with a third of a cup of orange juice, 12 whole cloves and 12 allspice berries for the 12 children born in this parasha, three to four cinnamon sticks, a quarter teaspoon of ground nutmeg, and two tablespoons of brown sugar, reminding us of Jacob's journey. Put it all into a saucepan and turn the heat up to medium-high. Once things have heated up to a boil, Turn down the heat and simmer for 20 minutes. Strain through a fine mesh sieve. Rim a glass or mug with sugar and then add uh, an amount of your choosing of your choice of bourbon and top with about one cup of your cider mix. Garnish with a cinnamon stick. For the non-alcoholic version, just leave out the bourbon and feel free to serve with whipped cream and a bit of grated nutmeg for an extra special pre-nap treat. L'chaim. Oh
0: my God. That is awesome. Gabe, that is awesome. Holy cow. First of all, so many rabbi points for trip to fam I mean, I know I was a part of that, but you just worded so good. Oh my God. Trip to fam And, and what you didn't know is that there's one thing I'm allergic to in this world, which is apples. No! but i'm telling you but i'm telling you that because of the sieve i probably could deal with it interesting and what a metaphor in the midrash in the metaphor i can i can strain it go through the process and enjoy my family once we go through the refining look at that just
3: remember to remain civil
0: Ooh!
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh this has gone off the rails in a wonderful way
0: oh this is the best night ever (laughs) (laughs) Kaylee, seriously you get smicha right now skip the rest of fourth year, fifth year, you're done you're done
3: JTS has taught me well
0: (laughs) I love it
2: (laughs) believe it or not friends and family we have made it to thank yous and closing cues again with Thanksgiving just a few days away, right around the corner. Menachem, Kaylee, Idan, Gabe, what are you thankful for? Menachem?
0: I am thankful for the air in my lungs and the chance to breathe with people on the screen and beyond and to spend my time in meaningful ways. And cider.
3: <laughs> Keely, what about you? I'm thankful that I'll get to see my family soon and that my two grandparents that live in Houston will finally get to meet my husband, Jack. Gabe?
1: I am thankful for my family with whom I've been staying for the last several months, and also for my friends and classmates who have really gotten me through the last several months, if not years. Edan?
0: Similar to what Kaylee said, um, my partner Agnes and I will be going to North Carolina next week to stay with my mom and my sister, and also see Agnes's parents as well, who are nearby. And we'll be there for about a month, um, which will be really great. Seeing as I'm doing all this remote work and she's doing remote school, um, we are really lucky to be able to do that. We haven't seen any, any family since before the quarantine. Um, And it's just been the two of us, we've been staying in New York, a lot of people are going home and staying with family. And we, yeah, we are really looking forward to being able to actually see everybody for the first time in what feels like an eternity. Um, And spend Thanksgiving together, spend the majority of of Hanukkah together. Um, And yeah, really, really thankful for that.
2: I am also really thankful to be able to see my parents more regularly uh, due to my job in Bedford. And also just them being close and it allows us to connect a little bit more. I'm also sincerely thankful for Gabe and edon and all of you uh, in this ability to start this podcast adventure. I know that it has been more than Gabe and I ever really wildly dreamed of and probably more than edon ever thought that he would be dealing with. Uh, but I feel very thankful to have such incredible partners in this process. And so with that, Menachem, if people want to continue the conversation with you, if they want to keep talking things out, if they want to keep connecting over Torah or over anything else, how can they find you? How can they follow you?
0: Sure. Uh, My website is MenachemCreditor.net, and I am a fiend on social media, especially on UJA's Facebook page every weekday morning at nine o'clock, where I've been doing a broadcast since March 13th, uh, every morning. So I think we're on episode one hundred and seventy tomorrow um so everybody is welcome
2: wonderful and with that any last words thoughts concerns or jokes that's for you menachem
0: for me uh <laughs> i'll do this one but you're gonna have to figure out if anyone would get it how do you know frogs are stupid because it says dumb Tsvardea. <laughs> okay that's enough
1: <laughs> that is it's excellent
0: it's wonderful <laughs>
2: beautiful with that a huge thank you to rabbi menachem creditor for joining us to kaylee to my co-host gabe and as always to our favorite most supreme sound producer and really guru in all things life related idan thank you so much have a wonderful night have a wonderful day have a wonderful thanksgiving wherever you may be and with that gabe we say l'chaim l'chaim Oh my goodness, this took me in so many different directions. There were times I was breathless, close to tears, times I was laughing, times I was confused. What a ride.
1: I completely agree. This was a fantastic conversation. So glad to have been here.
2: I think it was an impressive thing that before we even got started, really, that Rabbi Menachem says Torah can be used as a tool for connecting people.
1: That's true, and I think it's something that we've really taken to heart throughout this podcast.
2: I'm curious, though, Gabe, what you think about this idea or a difference of checking our privilege, especially when it comes to this time of Thanksgiving where we're really meant to be, like, feeling gratitude for all the things that we have.
1: I mean, I think those two things aren't mutually exclusive. I think they, in fact, go hand in hand. I think the idea of gratitude and recognizing the wonderful things uh, around us goes hand in hand with also recognizing that there are those who do not have those things. It goes hand in hand with saying, I have some privilege.
2: I think that's true. And another thing that he brought to the table was this idea that there really is enough love and blessings for everyone out there, as long as we're willing to put ourselves out there to receive and to give.
1: Yes, and to bring back one point he made, we also can't say that my blessing is any more than yours, that my God is any greater than your God.
2: I think that's true, especially this time of year when people are looking at celebrating Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas. Is there really a time where we can say this holiday is better than this holiday? And in all reality, what happens when we're celebrating multiple holidays or multiple identities at the same time? Is one better than another?
1: No, it's not. I think what's important to remember at this time of Thanksgiving, uh, albeit the weirdest Thanksgiving I've ever experienced, is that wherever we are, whomever we're with, um, and whether or not we're saying blessings or eating certain foods, we were all coming together for this holiday, whose own namesake is giving thanks and being grateful and showing gratitude for all that we have, and all that we are.
2: And with that, we're really grateful for all of you who are listening in, and we raise a glass to you this Thanksgiving. Lechayim.
1: Lechayim.
0: This is Rabbi Menachem Creditor, and I'm part of Drinking and Drashing, Torah with a Twist, where my host tried to poison me mm